You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he is also the Founder and Executive Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies and is on the core faculty at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. The ancient oracles of the prophets delivered to us in the scripture declare this, the lives of pious men who shone in old time with every virtue bear witness to posterity of the same. And our own days prove it to be true, wherein Constantine, who alone of all that ever wielded the Roman power was the friend of God, the sovereign of all, has appeared to all mankind so clear an example of a godly life. And God himself, who Constantine worshipped, has confirmed this truth by the clearest manifestations of his will, being present to aid him at the commencement, during the course, and at the end of his reign, and holding him up to the human race as an instructive example of godliness. Accordingly, by the manifold blessing he has conferred on him, he has distinguished him alone, of all the sovereigns of whom we have ever heard, as at once a mighty luminary and most clear voice herald of genuine piety. These are the words of Eusebius of Caesarea, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, early church historian writing about Emperor Constantine, the topic that we'll be looking at today. And it is clear from his words, his opinion of Constantine, who has for a long time been a point of contention within Christian circles for a variety of reasons. And that is one of the things we'll be uh, unpacking with Dr. Haken today. But first, Dr. Haken, if you could just give a backdrop of the Roman Empire leading up to the time of Constantine for those who may have missed some of the previous episodes where we discussed that. Yeah, so the Roman Empire was a military military dictatorship, I mean, bluntly speaking. Um, the emperor's uh, power rested upon the uh, Roman army. And... Um, uh, it's certainly not a democracy. The Roman Senate, which had been at the heart of the Roman Republic, which was uh, a really basically uh, ruled by the uh, aristocracy of the Roman world, about 600 families. Uh, the Senate lost enormous amounts of its power to the emperor after Augustus Caesar. Um, by the time you get to the third century, you have the empire, though, in crisis. And the crisis is on a number of levels. It's military. Uh, the inability of the empire to basically cope with incursions of barbarians, as they called them, on the Rhine frontier uh, and also in the middle, what we call now the Middle East. And um, during the 200s, roughly from 220 to about 284, uh, the Rhine River, which served as the frontier and the Danube, were penetrated a number of times by various barbarian groups, usually cavalry. Uh, the Romans had never focused on cavalry as a major unit of their armies. Their core of their army had been, uh, the heart of the army had been the foot soldier, the legionnaire, uh, the legionnaire, legionary rather. And so there needed to be mil really significant military revision uh, and uh, military renewal. Um, there's economic problems. Uh, there's massive inflation. Building ceases. Roads cease to be maintained, which is really a problem for the for the Roman Empire, because the Rome the Romans needed the roads 
to ensure that the legions could get to the various parts of the empire where they were needed in case of invasion, etc. And then there's massive political problems. Um, between 220 and 284, there's about 40 emperors. So in the space of 60 years, each emperor reigning about a year and a half, two years, all but two of them dying violently, either murdered, assassinated, or dying on the battlefield. So the the third century is an era of great crisis, and the crisis is one of political structure. The empire had become far too unwieldy uh, for the Romans to, to manage, and they were also, to some degree, running out of men. Um, so they're employing uh, various barbarian groups on the frontiers, as mercenaries, and uh, when an imperial power starts to use mercenaries as their major unit for fighting, you've got you've got issues. Um, all of that ends with the accession of Diocletian, who restores confidence in the economy, uh, rebuilds the political structure by dividing the power um, of the empire into two regions: the east and the west, roughly along linguistic lines. So the areas where Greek was the lingua franca more than Latin in the East became the kind of Eastern Roman Empire and the, the, the West uh, where the Latin was the dominant language. And he created um, two emperors, really, um, whom he called Augustus. So there was the Augustus of the East, which was himself, and an Augustus of the West. And underneath each of these, because one of the problems in the second century, third century, was the issue of transfer of power. In the second century, this had been done by the adoption by the reigning emperor of somebody that he wanted to succeed him. And it worked really well in the second century. So you have Nerva, 96, adopts Trajan, who becomes emperor two years later. He adopts Hadrian, who adopts Antoninus Pius, who adopts Marcus Aurelius. And so for 90 years, you've got a succession of, from the point of view of the Roman Empire administratively, you've got really good emperors. But problems come with Marcus Aurelius, where he basically um, insists that his son Commodus would become the emperor, and you start to get the, you start to get what you happen had happening in the first century, where um, imperial power it goes to your son, um, which was a problem in the first century. But the, in the first century, the the empire, in terms of its bureaucracy, its army, etc., was strong enough to weather the fact that a number of the Emperors in the first century are complete nutters, you know, uh, Caligula, uh, Nero, Domit, Domitian or Domitian. I mean, these, these guys are just megalomaniacs. Um, but the empire is strong enough to, to weather these people. In the third century, that is not the case. And uh, the, the model of the second century, which was the adoption of a man who was a skilled military figure, had the respect of the army as well as being politically astute. It's amazing you've got five emperors that are just all of that. Um, that model is discarded in the second century, uh, third century rather, and you, you get this model of, of my son's going to become the emperor after me, and it's just a complete breakdown. Uh, Diocletian wants to go back to the second century model, and so he, he ensures that uh, there is an Augustus of the East, an Augustus of the West, so the emperors of the East and the West, and each of them have below them what we might describe today as a vice emperor, or really they, they, the, the technical term is a Caesar. And so at a certain point, he would step down and the Caesar would succeed him. Um, it's in that context that Constantine comes to power as the uh, son of the, uh, the Augustus of the West, who is Constantius.
and um, he will be Constantius becomes Augustus of the West in 305 when uh, Diocletian steps down and the Emperor of the West steps down and Constantius, who was the August, uh, Caesar of the West, then becomes Augustus. And uh, Constantine will, will the whole thing will break down with Constantine and Constantine will, will go back to really kind of the model of the second century, the third the first century and the third century, where he'll have his son succeed him. And you have then the house of Constantine, which basically will be the dominant house uh, in terms of imperial power in the, in the fourth century. So it's complex. Um, and, um, but the, the empire in many respects should have fallen in the third century. The fact that it does not um, is quite remarkable. And um, just the other day it came up uh, in a context where somebody was going on about the fact that our, our situation today is very similar to the Roman Empire in its last days. You know, uh, massive political corruption, um, growth of luxury, um, indifference to uh, the well-being of our society, etc., etc., and uh, the, the person quoted a long section from Edward Gibbon. Uh, this is why the Roman Empire fell. We're on the same. We're on the same course. And I, I just couldn't let. I just couldn't let it go. And I, I, I put a comment, long comment. Uh, well, you are aware that the empire was being run by Christians, right? Christians have been in power since three hundred six with, with Constantine. And so when the empire fell, it was Christians running the show. It wasn't wasn't pagans. And in fact, uh, the person was going on. You know the massive amount of fornication going on in the Roman world. <laughs> no, the rage of the Roman world when the empire fell was monasticism. I mean, uh, there's numerous complaints of parents, you know, I, my son had a great future and then he's run off into the desert. Uh, he's not he's growing his hair long, growing a beard, hanging out with monks and he won't get married. And he's, he's not fornicating at all. He's, he's given up on all of that. And he's basically embraced asceticism. Um, it's a it's a classic case of of a of a failure to understand history. Uh, anyway, that's another subject. So anyway, I did get off on the no. That's trail there. that is a very good point um, that I think um, a lot of Christians haven't fully considered um, when you actually look at the power dynamics by the end of the by the end of the fourth century um, that it isn't quite that simple. Um, what could you tell us about Constantine's uh, upbringing? Uh, what was his exposure to, to Christians? Um, maybe what was his family's, family's attitude uh, toward Christians? Did he have any interaction with Christians? Yeah, he would have been um, growing up in the household of the Caesar of the West, namely Constantius I. Um, he would have been groomed for power. Um, he, he knew the realities of political life. We would have had rhet rhetorical training, the ability to be able to speak publicly and persuade um, uh, leading figures of the rightness of one's cause and therefore, you know, the, the way of garnering support. So he would have been very used to, he would have been educated uh, as in terms of rhetoric, uh, writing, reading. Um, he would have had a very fine education. Um, he was groomed for power. Um, he's a very ambitious man. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I think that's one reason why some people, especially among the Anabaptist kind of stream, whether uh, confessionally Anabaptist or not, that have argued, you know, there's no way the guy could have been a Christian. Um, you know, look at the ambition that's there. But I, I think we probably all know people who are ambitious, deeply ambitious, and yet are professing Christians. Um, 
So, and uh, also his father, his father did have ties to the church. Um, to what degree his father was committed to Christianity, uh, Constantine believed he was. He actually says at one point in one of his speeches that all the emperors who came before him were all of them insane. And they're all in hell, every one of them. Quite a remarkable statement. A complete break with the history of the tradition of Rome. They're all in hell, except for his father. They all persecuted the true church, except for his father. And in fact, there was a persecution raging in 303, uh, which had been initiated by Diocletian and kept going by his Caesar, the Caesar of the East, Galerius, um, which Constantius, when he becomes Augustus of the West in 305, immediately halts. Um, and uh, Constantius also, one of his, one of his daughters, uh, who would be then a sister of Constantine, uh, he called her Anastasia. Um, Athanasia makes sense. That means immortality. Anastasia does not make sense for a pagan. Because that means resurrection. Resurrection of the body. Uh, which pagans did not believe in. They believed in, in the immortality of the soul. Um, everybody believed in the immortality of the soul in the ancient world pretty well. Um, so it would have made sense to call her Athanasia, uh, immortality. But he calls her Anastasia. So um, there is there is connection with, with the church. There probably were bishops in the the household of uh, Constantius I. Um, he definitely has bishops as, as key advisors. And so there would have been a familiarity with Christianity um, prior to his becoming, um, becoming emperor. So are you saying that Constantine would have had a positive exposure to Christians during his upbringing? Yes, most definitely. Um, I mean, there were figures in the Roman world that were very uh, negative about Christianity and hostile to the Christian faith, namely a man like Porphyry, who was a fairly prominent philosophical figure who argued that the Christianity had to be exterminated, essentially, um, because it was a it was a blight upon the empire in terms of it was undermining the security of the empire, which rested upon the worship of the Roman gods. Do we know if Constantine ever participated in any... Uh, persecution during his time as emperor um well constantine would have been part of his father's household so according to constantine his father never engaged in persecution of the church um to what degree he could have avoided that i'm not certain but um it would appear to me that there's really only two years it's between 303 and 305 persecutions initiated in 303 february of 303 and in uh, early in 305, uh, um, his father is declared Augustus of the West. Um, so there's a two-year period then. Was Constantine involved in any way, shape, or form in persecution? Um, I think the answer, I've never come across anybody who's argued that he was. So I think the answer would have to be that he, he was not. So for those who don't know, what is the source for Constantine's conversion? Because it's quite an extraordinary story. Um, you know, should it, should it be believed? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, our source is Eusebius of Caesarea. And Eusebius was a bishop of Caesarea. He was um, uh, the heir of a man named Pamphilus, who had been influenced, strongly influenced by Origen. Origen had been... Um, 
Uh, he'd left Alexandria in the 230s and had gone, 220s, uh, two thir- early 230s, and had gone to Caesarea where he'd established a school and had left a substantial library, which was used by the bishops of Caesarea. And so Eusebius grew up in that world, deeply influenced by Origen, a world of massive learning and a world that took took seriously one's sources. Um, where Eusebius can be checked, he normally is reliable. Um, Timothy Barnes has been very influential. He is, um, in my thinking, um, he was a professor of classics at the University of Toronto. I think in his latter years, he went to Edinburgh. I forget the details of his uh, last teaching position, but for many years, he was at the University of Toronto. And um, I remember going to a lecture that he gave somewhere in the 19, late 80s on uh, Eusebius of Caesarea. And if you had walked into the lecture 10 minutes into the lecture, or even five minutes into the lecture, after the introductory remarks by Professor Barnes had were over, you would have thought you were listening to a man who ha- had a deep admiration for Eusebius in the sense of not only admired him as a historian who was faithful largely to his sources, but also admired him as a Christian. Um, but Barnes opened the lecture by indicating that whatever he might say in the course of the lecture regarding the fidelity and integrity of Eusebius as a historian, um, Barnes himself was an atheist and didn't buy any of the stuff that Eusebius believed. But none of that was of any was ever, was of any concern to the student of Eusebius. And so with that said and out of the way, he was prepared to get going and uh, raise the question of to what degree is Eusebius a faithful, a faithful historian to his sources? So all of that to say that I, I think that lecture, but also particularly um, Timothy Barnes's book, uh, Constantine and Eusebius, which is a, a massive study of Constantine as an emperor and, the, and his relationship to Eusebius and the fidelity of Eusebius to his sources, um, have convinced me of a number of perspectives on Constantine, which I wouldn't have held when I first started teaching uh, the Roman world in the, in the 19, early 1980s. So Eusebius is is a is a fairly reliable source, and he's the one. He gives the impression that he knew Constantine probably a lot better than he actually did. the The connections between him and Constantine are probably really in the three thirties, um, in the last years of Constantine's life. Um, but it was during an interview with Constantine in three thirty seven, uh, three thirty six, sorry, where Eusebius was invited to to preach at the church, one of the churches in Constantinople, I'm not sure if it was the Church of the Apostles. Um, it certainly is not the Hagia Sophia, which is the, probably the most famous church in that area now, because that's not built until much later. But um, Eusebius is invited to preach on the 30th anniversary of the accession of Constantine to power. His father uh, had only been Augustus of the West a year before he died. And the legions declared Constantine Emperor of the West, Augustus of the West, in York in 306. Um, That was not met with overall enthusiasm by other parts of the empire. And Constantine basically had to fight his way to power until 312 when he entered the city of Rome as victor over any of his opponents in the West. And um, that entry into Rome... Uh, occurred after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which was one of the bridges leading into Rome. 
um, a fairly significant battle in the annals of not only Roman history, but Western, Western culture. Um, as he told Eusebius many years later, uh, Eusebius had gone to Constantinople, as I mentioned, to preach on the accession, 30th anniversary of the accession of Constantine. So 336, 30 years. Um, and um, uh, in a private interview with Eusebius, he told Eusebius that on the eve of the battle, he had had a dream. Um, and a vision. And in the vision, he saw a sign in the heavens and a voice telling him, by this sign, you shall conquer. And the sign was almost definitely the what's known as the Cairo symbol, which is the two first letters of Christ's name in Greek. Christos is the name, is Christ's name in Greek, the title rather in Greek. And the Chi, C-H, and the Rho, R, uh, are two letters. And the early Christians had intertwined them um, and the, the row, the chi looks like a large X, the row like a P, and they'd intertwine them to form an early Christian symbol. And it's almost that symbol that Constantine placed on the, on the, on the banners and shields of his soldiery as they went into battle in 312 at the Milvian Bridge. And, um, so, um, Constantine then really claims that it was Christ and God who won that victory and uh, had called him to to be the emperor of the of the, of the of of the west now was this a common view that emperors would hold that they had been given um some type of divine calling uh was this uh unique to constantine do we see other explicit claims to uh, such divine callings from the emperors prior to constantine yeah it's a very good question and I don't really don't have a complete answer to it. My suspicion is that very few of the emperors, I mean, all of the emperors would have believed, well, at least a good number of them would have believed that they were in touch with the divine to some degree or other. Uh, they certainly, uh, the, the Romans believed that dwelling in dwelling the emperor, the pagan emperors was the genius of the empire. That is the spirit that gave the empire um, health and blessing and enabled it to flourish. And so the emperor was then a vehicle for divine blessing um, in that sense, and which meant that he, to some degree, was in touch with the gods. Um, some of the emperors were cynical about this. Vespasian, for instance, when he's dying, um, uh, it was always believed that the emperor became a god at, at his death. And he actually says at one point as he's dying, I, I think I'm about to become a god. And uh, said it apparently jokingly and almost satirically or ironically. Um, but the idea of having a vision in this manner, I think, is somewhat unique. And as I said, I, I may be wrong on this. I, I mean, I don't know all of the, the ins and outs of various emperors in terms of their coming to power. Um, I, I'm sure that they would argue that, you know, during the third century, their defeat of their opponents, either in battle or by assassination, um, was foreordained by the gods. But the fact that they would have a vision like this is its somewhat unusual, I think. So in the next episode, we'll be looking at some of the results of uh, Constantine's ascension as emperor. Um, in the opening statements that you made, you seem to indicate that you think Constantine's uh, conversion was genuine. Could you speak to that? What are some of the arguments for? What are the, some of the arguments against uh, this genuine conversion? 
Well, the bulk of the arguments are going to have to wait till next week when we look at or next time when we look at the um, the results of his reign, because my arguments are basically framed around two things. One, his words, and then secondly, his actions. And his actions produce a, a, a basically a revolution in Roman society. Um, when he comes to power in 306 and when he dies in 337, nothing, nothing has uh, emerged. Nothing has remained unscathed by significant change uh, by uh, by the the embrace of Christianity by Constantine. Um, there are his words um, where we we have a number of his speeches uh, recorded by uh, Eusebius. And that's why the the importance of Eusebius as a faithful uh, um, uh, transmitter of text is is an important question. Um, hence, the, the, the reason why I, I spent a bit of time talking about Professor Barnes's um, judgment that Eusebius was indeed faithful in terms of the way he handled sources and texts. Because um, in his life of Constantine, Eusebius has a number of speeches of Constantine, which Constantine clearly, clearly indicates that um, he is a believer and a disciple of the, of the Holy God who called him from the Britannic Ocean, namely the Atlantic, and uh, has subdued <clears throat> the entirety of the Roman world under the sign of the cross. Um, not only speeches that were given internally to the Roman world for Roman consumption, but also externally. So he writes to one of the major enemies of the Roman world, which is the Sassanid or Sasanian or Persian Empire, and the Emperor Shapur II, I think it is. Um, I don't think it's Shapur I, I think it's Shapur II. And he's heard that Shapur II is persecuting Christians, and he tells him in no uncertain terms, you need to stop that because my, my, my God is their God, and if you don't stop it, I'm going to come over there and just uh, basically take away your power and uh, uh, basically dethrone you. And he was true to his word. Um, he launched, eventually launches, and it's an interminable war. I mean, we think about the war in Afghanistan going on for year, years. Well, this is a war that lasts actually centuries. Um, it's launched in the 330s, and it doesn't end until the 630s. And it ends when Islam bursts out of the Saudi Peninsula, and basically two weakened empires, the Eastern Roman Empire, which has become the Byzantine Empire, and the Sasanian Empire, are easy prey to the Muslim um, Muslim armies. Um, but that, that war, both hot and cold, is launched by Constantine. And it's launched by Constantine because the, the Persians insist on persecuting the church. Well, it's, it's, it's a political move that makes no sense at all unless Constant, unless you, you grapple with the fact that Constantine genuinely believes that as a Christian, he has a responsibility because of his now um, uh, empowerment and his power, he has a responsibility to protect the church. Whether or not he's right or wrong, not right or wrong on that, that's another question. But I do think he saw himself as a Christian. And aside from the ambition, what are some of the claims that people would make contra to a genuine conversion experience? Yeah, I mean, he's um, one of his sons tries to stage a coup, and he's he's fairly blood bloodthirsty in terms of vengeance. A uh, number of people are executed within his family, um, but that's this world. That's this. This is a world of power politics, and uh, I'm not trying to excuse it. But once you once once a Christian steps into this realm of political power, you, you shouldn't be surprised if you don't find yourself corrupted by that power. Um, it was Tolkien who said that uh, when you when, 
using the imagery of the Lord of the Rings, um, if you take the ring, the, the wrong, the one ring that was to power um, to control them all in the the Lord of the Rings, and you seek to use that ring as the enemy has, you'll end up as the enemy. And I think that I think Tolkien there is reflecting a much broader principle that basically reckons with the fact that when Christians enter into the into the arena of politics, you shouldn't you should not be surprised uh, to find power corrupting them. And um, I, I think the fact that Constantine engages in some acts of political power that are problematic should not mean automatically, well, he can't, can't have been a Christian. I think what it does, I think what it does show is the ambiguity that plagues Christians uh, in the halls of power, political power. Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on Bede.